John 17, and we'll be looking at verses 20 through 26. John 17, beginning there in verse number 20. Neither pray I for those alone, these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. You'll look with me, our Lord's words there in verse 24. A very profound and I think a very, uh, very touching expression, request, that they may behold my glory. That they may behold my glory. Of course, our Lord knew that the church would grow more than just from the handful of disciples that he had that were with him. He knew that the church was not just going to consist of 12 disciples. So we see in verses 20 through 26, after we've witnessed our Lord praying primarily for those disciples, praying for those apostles and what they were going to be facing, in effect, the page turns a bit. And the Lord begins to pray for all who should believe on Him. It's quite remarkable to think about that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you were one that He was praying for. That's remarkable to me. That something penned so many years ago, our Lord's words long before we were even thought of, He was praying for all who should believe on Him. This is that great prayer of Christ. We understand that the Lord is building His church, has been building His church. Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of this one glorious body, the body of Christ. He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. The bride is His glorious church. So his prayer is for his church, for his people. He also says in verse 21, in addition that they may behold my glory, he says that they also may be one in us. What an amazing thought that is. Not only do I pray that they might behold my glory, but that they may be one in us, to be one in Christ. What great grand truth this is. So he prays not only for his disciples and prays not just for those who are those present apostles, but for all who will believe, those who will believe the gospel. 
John 17, 9, he very clearly says that I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Clearly here, Christ did not pray for those who would die in unbelief. He prayed for those who were not yet believers, but would one day believe. We see that in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Through the word is a reference to the disciples, and that's the very, that's the very message we're preaching tonight is the very message that the, the disciples preach, the gospel message. Christ prays for those who would believe. What a great truth this is to consider. Verse 20, again, he says, neither pray I for these alone. Not just about the apostles, not just about the disciples, not those that he had said would be preserved. He had prayed for their sanctification. He had been praying that in, verses, in verse number 19. But now so that we would see that it's not just for the disciples, but for all people who he had a regard for all that the Father had given him. He's making intercession for all of his people. But for them which shall believe. Our belief is based upon the one object of true faith. Our one object of true faith is Christ alone. True faith is not just a mental ascent. It's not just an arrival of our mind to any truth concerning Christ. A man or a woman can believe a lot of things about Christ. They can believe that he existed. They could believe he was a good man. They could believe he was even a prophet. But faith is the belief that he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. It's a spiritual sight of him. It's a belief is to have a spiritual sight. Not just that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah and the Savior, but that he is of our necessity. We need Christ. Not that he might be good if we call upon him, but that we need Christ because of our sinful condition. That He is fit to be a Savior. He's fit to be the Redeemer. And that He is suitable to put all of our trust alone in Him as Savior. Faith goes to Him. Faith trusts in Him. Faith lays hold on Christ and depends upon Him alone for our very life and our very salvation. We're told throughout Scripture that the Gospel is the very means in which the elect or those who will believe are brought to Christ. In a day and age which the Bible and the preaching of the Word is taking backstage, it's a tragic mistake to take away the primacy of preaching the Gospel. Because it's the Gospel and the means in which the Father and through the Son and through the power of the Spirit is drawing the elect unto Himself. It is indeed a gift of God to hear the gospel and to believe. To believe is to have the fruit or the evidence of God's electing grace. If you believe tonight, it's because you are a recipient of God's electing grace. That electing grace is secure. It's not a grace that is given and then taken away. It's grace that secures you in Him. 
So our Lord knew that there would be a number in all successive generations that would believe in him. You and I have no idea how many since Christ uttered those words have been bought by this electing grace, have been brought into the kingdom of God, who are now believers who were the very objects of his prayer. I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for the ministry of the word. Every Lord's Day, every Wednesday, someone stands up here and ministers the word. It's not a reading. It's not just a book that's being read to you. It is the living word of God. It's life-giving. It is the very power. It's the faith that man, it's hearing comes. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. He prayed that the ministry of the word would go forth. That they would be converted. He's praying for the success of the gospel. He's praying for the good of a sinner and his soul. Verse 21, his request goes on and he says that they all may be one. That there would be a unity in faith. What are they unified in? They're unified in the knowledge of Christ. There's one Christ. There's one faith which every converted soul agrees with. If you are converted tonight, if you are in Christ, then you agree with the very words in which the gospel proclaim. There's no hesitation in them. There is no, I wonder if this is true. No, you have completely taken hold on the reality that Jesus Christ is the only way. It's evidence of the work of grace in you. Now we know that as man and women come to an understanding of their faith and their conversion, some are given various degrees of light. Some describe their conversions as almost something that it was as if the light just went on and this was this glorious truth and they said there was an understanding that they were a sinner and that Christ had saved them. Others, there's a little bit of a degree of spiritual knowledge that comes and it's as if a, a veil is being slowly lifted off of their eyes. You see, the ministry of the Word is not the same all across the board. Not everybody has the same conversion experience. For too long, we've put emphasis on, tell me about your experience. What do you mean it wasn't like instantaneous? Everyone's experience is different. Some people will say they, they, they didn't even realize it until they, they came to that conclusion through the Spirit convincing them and reminding them you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. They didn't even realize the degrees in which they were being enlightened. But it's the Gospel. There's this agreement. The word one suggests there's an agreement there's an agreement and they all agree in the main point of the gospel. Salvation is in Christ Jesus alone. This agreement in this doctrine is with respect to the offices and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is absolutely necessary to be fully agreed in that for you and I as a church to walk together in fellowship. There can be no compromise in that truth. 
to walk in fellowship as a body of believers, there has to be agreement on the soul salvation alone in Jesus Christ alone. Absolutely necessary. We could agree on a lot of other things. We could agree on politics. We could agree on sports teams. We could agree on even denominations. But if we do not agree in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is, there can be no true fellowship. We walk together. We carry the word of God. Our worship is centered on the very reality of what Jesus is praying for, that they all may be one. Saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Carrying on the worship of God together. Have a unity of affection towards one another. Being knit together in love. Having a heart that is in one accord. Bound in the, perf in the perfectness of a perfect Savior. A church that's walking in proper fellowship shows evidence of regeneration. Fruits of the Spirit. It's not just a profession of the mouth. Faith has works. Faith without works is dead. It's the beauty of our communion that we have. Not the Lord's table per se, but communion. It is what, it is what binds us together. Jesus also here with this petition also, I think, had in mind also the gathering together of all the saints in the last day. One body united together in faith and love, all in common agreement that Jesus Christ is the head, the Savior, the shepherd of the sheep. There will be no disagreement in doctrine in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not going to be this group over here who believes this and this group over here who believes this. They will all be unified. They'll be one in Christ Jesus. Some of us are saying right now, I wish that was the way it was now because of all the things that we hear. But Jesus is praying for that which will be. Those who are in Christ now will be one in Him for all of eternity. He goes on, he says, as thou, Father, look at, this, look at the beautiful expression here, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. This is that great mystery between the mutual in being of the Father and the Son who are one in nature, in essence, in power, in will. They're in complete agreement. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are never in disagreement. They're never contrary to one another in will. Christ Himself said on numerous occasions, I came to do the will of My Father. It proclaims the oneness that is between Christ the Son and God the Father. They're one in union. They're one in power. They're one in understanding. They're one in affection. Now Jesus, of course, here is not asking them to have that same relationship that He has with the Father and the Son have, but that it's an example of how the saints' union with one another should be. That because of our oneness individually in God, we should have that type of union as believers. We're not equal with God, but we are to live in likeness to God. 
We should have unity. Again, sometimes churches make great mistakes of trying to be unified on things that are of temporal nature. Unity is found in Christ alone. It is found in what think ye of Christ? It's the great separating question. What do you think of Christ? That they also may be one in us. There is a union of all the children of God, all the elect of God and Christ, which is already complete. This is, one again, one of those great mysteries. We are already one in Christ, loved by God with an everlasting love. We are indivisibly in Christ, never to be separated. That phrase, in Christ, is not just a cute Christian cliche. We are actually one in Christ. How did we get there? We were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Chosen as members of the body of Christ. We are united to Him. He is our federal head. Maybe you've heard that expression. He is our mediator. He is our surety. He is our representative. He came to this earth. He took on human flesh. He took on our nature. He stood in our place and goes to a cross and brings us to God. You were brought to God the Father through the Son. This union that we are in Christ, this oneness that we have, it's revealed in our conversion Again, how do, we, how do we show that we are actually in Christ, that we are one in Christ? It is shown by the evidence of the fruit and the effects of this love that's been bestowed upon us. If you have been shown this love, this everlasting love, friends, I can't say this any clearer, there is always going to be fruit. If there's no fruit in your life, you are not in Christ. Fruit always proceeds out of that oneness, that being in Christ. There is no such thing as I prayed the prayer and then no fruit, but I'm glad I'm one in Christ. There's evidence. There's fruit. It's gloriously seen in those who've been converted. Again, there's also the prayer of the Lord Jesus is praying here also for that glorious day when it comes when all of the children of God, all of the elect shall be brought in. And there will truly be what we will see with our own eyes, this true oneness. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now again, some commentators disagree on specifically who he meant when he said this. There are two two uh, paths that I, I came across, and I'll share both of them with you. Some say that this is the rest of God's chosen people that he's pray, praying for, those who are in the world who have not yet been effectually called, those who are, they are of the elect, but they've not yet been effectually called. Or is it a prayer for the wicked part of the world? The Jews the atheist, there's a little bit of a, a, a contradiction there, I think, when he says he prays not for the world. I take the position that he's praying for the God's chosen people who have not yet been called. 
those who will believe, those who eventually will come to saving faith, those who will see the agreement that's found in Christ, those who will agree in doctrine and worship and affection. And again, when all the elect shall be gathered together, not only their union with one another, but the union they have in God will clearly be seen. They will believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's not an imposter. Verse 22, and the glory which thou gavest me. Now Jesus, of course, is not saying give them the glory of his deity. He's not saying give them the same glory that I share with you, Father. But he's asking them that they would be made one in the Godhead, that they would, be, uh, they would, they would have a, a view of this glory that is seen between the Father and the Son. I believe there's even a reference here that Jesus is speaking about the glory that he once had when he was at the right hand of the Father and then he left that place and came down to this earth in the incarnation, took on that robe of human flesh and fulfilled not only the law, but the prophets, lived a perfect life, went to the cross and died and gloriously rose again. But this glory that Christ speaks of, throughout Scripture we see that Christ refers to that glory that He once had. The glory that He had from the Father in which His own glory was manifested. I believe here what He's talking about, the glory which Thou gavest Me, again, I believe He's pointing directly to the Gospel. Why is the Gospel glorious? It's glorious because of its author. Who's the author of the Gospel? God Himself. It's glory. The gospel is glorious in its subject. It's glorious in its doctrines. It's glorious in its blessing. It's glorious in the grace that it reveals. It's glorious in the promise it contains. It's glorious in its effectiveness. It's glorious in its usefulness and its needfulness to sinful man. There's no greater need in the world than for the sinner to have Christ. That's man's greatest need. This glory that he's speaking about, the glory that he's talking about, is the glory of the gospel, the glory of eternal life. He says, verse, again, verse 22, I have given them. This is similar to the words he said back in verse number 8. He said, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst sent me. We understand that the gospel was given to the apostles. It's, we are still ministers of the same gospel that the apostles preached. The true gospel has not changed, ever. It's not been amended. It's not been added to. It's not been taken away from. The true biblical gospel is the same gospel that the disciples preached. It's the same gospel the apostle Paul preached. It's the same gospel that Timothy preached. The gospel of the disciples of the apostles is the same gospel that gets preached from this pulpit every single week. It hasn't changed. It doesn't need to change. It doesn't need to be watered down. It doesn't need to be blunted where we take off the sharpness of it. 
A popular motivation today is the gospel's too sharp. That's the beauty of it. It's beauty. The gospel actually cuts and pricks us to the heart that brings us to conviction, that brings us to an understanding. The gospel, the gospel is offensive. Grace is offensive to the natural man. The sinner can't stand grace. The sinner can't understand why is mercy being extended to me, a sinner. And yet, that's the very beauty of it. The gospel is a promise of that which is to come. We're already in possession of eternal life. You've heard me say this before. We're not waiting until we die to receive eternal life. If you're in Christ, you already possess eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's amazing to me. It might not amaze you, but it amazes me. Because we're not thinking about the reality that we're already one in Christ, but there's even something more glorious coming. But yet we're already one in Him. We're already seated in heavenly places, yet we're still here. Verse 23 says, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. I in them, he says. Christ is in them. He's in His people in a gracious manner. He's in them in regeneration when He's revealed to them. He becomes the hope of glory. Christ, through the power of the Spirit, takes possession of the believer, communicates repeatedly over and over and over again the grace that's been shown to you and the very fact that we have fellowship with God is marvelous. And we have the presence of the Spirit. I in them. Who is it that indwells the believer? It's not Christ. It's not Christ we have in our heart. It's the Spirit we have in our heart. It's the Spirit that indwells. But who does the Spirit testify of? Testifies of Christ and who He is. Grace, the grace of God, is condescending grace. That means it came down to us. We did not go up to it. Left to ourselves, we would have never even wanted, desired, sought after grace. He, Christ, condescended and came down to you. If He is in you through the power of the Spirit, it's because He condescended to come to where you are. He isn't waiting for those to decide, I want to come to Him. No, He knows that He, is, he comes to them and then there is this response that they then go to Him. This grace, this reality of I in them, do you know that this is peculiar and it's only found in biblical Christianity. You realize every other God, every other false God in the world, there's not a reference made to that God indwelling them. Only in Christianity, true Christianity, does God dwell within the believer, the followers. 
I in them and thou in me, the Father is in Christ, not only in union of nature, but as mediator, shows himself the glory that's found in Christ, that they may be perfect in one. Now this is not speaking of their justification, which is already perfect. If you're in Christ, your justification is already perfect. He's not even talking about their sanctification, which will be perfect. But they will eventually, they one day will become perfect in knowledge, in holiness, in peace, in joy, in love. That one day is coming. But there's also the beauty that one day, every single person who is called by God's electing grace will be gathered together. And the process of not only regeneration, but sanctification and glorification will be completed. Perfect. That the world may know that thou hast sent me. There's a lot of repetition in these verses. As, and as love them as thou hast loved me. Friends, do you, do you realize, have you ever meditated long enough to think about how much God the Father loved Christ the Son? I know we sing the hymns about God's love to the Son. We sing about the love of Christ. We sing about the things, the beauty of it. But have we really stopped to meditate about how the Father loved the Son? Jesus Christ demonstrated His love, the same love that the Father had for Him when He assumed our nature. When He became obedient to the Father's will in doing and suffering, even when the Father poured out His holy wrath upon Christ, Christ laid down His life for the sheep. Do you realize that even in God's the Father's perfect wrath that was poured out on the Son, He loved the Son. Humans say, how can, how can love be displayed in wrath? Yet that's the love the Father had for the Son, that even in wrath, God's love for the Son is being displayed. We see wrath in our society, and we say, I don't see love. That's an evidence of hatred. But do you know what's happening when God's pouring out His wrath, God the Father's pouring out His wrath upon the Son? The accomplishment of your redemption is taking place. He is paying for your sin. He who knew no sin. The nature of this love is that God the Father loved the Son from eternity. He loved Him with great delight. He loved Him with an unchangeable love, an inseparable love, a love that will last forever. Now here's, here's the real deep part. <laughs> I was thinking about this today. If God loves His people as He loves the Son... He loves them and loves you and I not just merely as creatures, not just people who descended from Adam, but He loves His children as He loves His Son. 
the instances of his love towards us. How did God the Father show his love towards us? Well, first and foremost, he chose us in Christ. He chose us. He made a covenant. He sends his son into the world to obtain, to accomplish our salvation. We are quickened and called by divine grace. And if that's not enough, by the way, that ought to be enough to make even Reformed Baptists shout. If that's not enough, he then, after all of that, supplies us with all of what we need. Our daily wants. He delivers us out of temptation. He delivers us out of afflictions. Romans 8 says He causes all things to work together for our good. That's everlasting love. If you've never thought about how amazing God's love must be, you haven't looked at your sin closely enough. That's the easiest way I can put it. When you look at who you are and what you are and what we are as sinners, you see how amazing God's love is. When you truly understand that you have done nothing to merit or earn it, there is nothing lovable in you. There's nothing lovable in me, yet God, before the foundation of the world, called people unto himself. It is an everlasting, unchangeable love that will continue forever. Again, how he loves the Son, yes, there are some differences in how he loves us. But do you realize the reason he loves us is because he loves his Son? When he looks at you, he sees the love he has for his Son. Verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me. Again, he's very, being very specific here. Not the whole world, but a number, a select number. Not just the apostles, but all believers as the elect of God. All that are of this eternal act of grace. This is what he has in mind here. Those who you have given me, Father, those who the Father has given, he will in no wise cast out. This God, the Son here, is declaring the very will, and he is, he is, he is he's almost repeating back to the Father, these are the ones you gave me. Again, this might be, again, as you hear me say every once in a while, speaking as the manner of men, it's as if Jesus is insisting I have a right to them because you gave them to me. Now again, that's a human way of understanding that. But he says, not only I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Now of course he's not talking about where he is then, but where he should be, where he will be. Jesus is looking down through the pages of time, which isn't long after, and he's looking and he's thinking about his resurrection. He's thinking about that after his resurrection, 
He's thinking about where he's going after that. And he's thinking about those souls of his saints that will be with him where he is. Folks, this is our great desire. Your great desire today ought not to be success and power in this world, but to be where he is. To be where Christ the Son is. This is what Hebrews talks about. We are the joy that was set before Him. The cross that He goes to. We ought to comfort one another with this reality that one day we're going to go be with Him where He is. Again, which brings us to our text, that they may behold My glory. Again, not just this thought of glory of His deity, but a believer seeing just some view of what this glory is. But we are assured right now that Christ is glorified in heaven. And one day we also will see Him as He is. This glory of Christ we will see. We'll see Him with our eyes. We'll, we'll see Him. We will be with Him. We'll be like Him. We will appear in glory with Him. Folks, again, the sight of this glory is now veiled somewhat. We don't fully see the glory of God. We don't see the glory of Christ. But do you know that when we are with Him, it's not going to be at a distance. We will be rejoicing and we will be eternally satisfied forever. We will want nothing else. Humanly speaking, we don't even understand what it means to not want something else. We always want more. But Christ will be our full, complete, perfect satisfaction. He says, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. This is again mentioned both as a reason why this glory was given to him because of his father's love to him. Christ is praying this with an expectation that these requests are going to be so because they're based on the very promises based upon the love of God the Father. He says, O righteous Father, in verse 25, God, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. God is righteous in all of his divine persons. The Father is righteous, the Son is righteous, the Holy Spirit is righteous. Righteous in nature. Righteousness is a perfection of God's nature. God is righteous in all of His purposes. He's righteous in all of His promises. All of His ways, all of His works of providence, all of His works of grace. He's righteous in His acts of predestination. He's, at, he's righteous in His acts of redemption, in justification, in the forgiveness of sin. And He's righteous in eternal glory. Christ again is calling again on His Father on behalf of Himself and the people. The world hath not known Thee. Jesus has in mind here the unbelieving Jews, the idolatrous Gentiles, wicked men who know not God. To not know God means you don't know the Son. You also don't know the Spirit. Man can know there's a God. And not be in Christ. 
Man can know there's a God, there's an intelligent being, there's something, but they know nothing of Christ. They have no communion with Him. Jesus is very clearly differentiating between those who know Him and those who don't. And Jesus declares, I have known Thee. Christ the Son knows the Father. He knows His nature. He knows His perfection. He knows His glory. He knows the thoughts, the purposes, the designs. He knows the covenant. He knows the promises. He knows the blessings. He knows the love. He knows the grace. And He knows the goodwill that's being demonstrated towards the people. He says, I am one with the Father. And these have known that Thou hast sent me. Now he kind of changes back here and he's talking now again more about the disciples and the apostles who he distinguishes from the world. He says, these have known that thou sent me. The disciples we even saw in John 16, they made reference that we know and we believe. They knew that the Father had sent Christ, that he was sent by the Father. They began to understand the love of the Father in sending him. They began to understand the manner in which Christ was sent. They begin to understand that Christ was sent into this world for the redemption of the sinner. To know that, folks, to know that puts us under an obligation. We have an obligation to love Christ. You have an obligation to trust Him. You and I have an obligation to not only love and trust Him, but we have an obligation to magnify His grace. To magnify what He's done. To magnify the Gospel. And then our final verse, He says, I have declared unto them thy name. The reference here, the name, means a reference to God Himself. Again, the nature, the perfections, His grace, His mercy. Christ is, of course, the fittest person to make this declaration because He was with Him from all of eternity. The Father did all in Christ. His name is in Him. Christ is the faithful witness. You cannot know God in a saving manner without knowing Christ. It is in and through Christ. These apostles, Christ's name, God the Father, was declared unto them. And notice he says they will declare it. Christ begins again to speak more about how even after his resurrection, these truths will be more and more and fully developed and declared. Jesus, after his resurrection, declares these truths even more. The truth of his coming will be declared even more in his ascension. And one day, His glory will be perfectly declared, and so will His name. That the love wherewith Thou hast loved me may be in them. That they would have a sense of the love which God the Father loves the Son. That they might get a glimpse of what it is to be in Christ and to abide in Him. To be loved with the same love that the Father has for the Son. The sense seems to be here that Christ, by declaring His Father's name unto them, they will get a greater sense of what this means. And it will overwhelm them for all of eternity. The last phrase He says in this prayer, I in them. 
dwelling in them, taking up residence, not only by the Spirit which we have now, please don't miss this, not only by the Spirit and the grace we experience now, but the glorious presence we're going to have with Him in eternity. I have caught myself often as a preacher wishing, again, maybe I'm speaking with the flesh here, wishing I could fully understand what that glorious presence is going to be like. But I keep coming to this reality that I'm still looking through sinful eyes. I still cannot fully understand what the glorious presence of being with Christ forever to be brought to the Father's house and to behold His glory for all of eternity actually is going to look like. When Jesus said, behold my glory, yeah, we have a glimpse of it now. We see it darkly. We see it through a veil. We see the gospel. We see the power of it. We see the, we see the wonder of grace. But do you know, we will not see that full, completed glory of the Lord Jesus Christ until we're with Him. When I read through this prayer and I think about this prayer, I think about where do my, is my desire more to be here or more to be with him. You see, it's easy to lose sight of the glorious presence of Christ that we have promised to us. The world has every hook. It has its hooks in you. It has its hooks in me to think that this is what you're living for. And it's not. The glimpse of the gospel that you have is just a foretaste of what's coming. That glorious presence to be with Christ forever. That all of these things that have been by faith will become sight. That word behold means to actually look, to see with understanding and with knowledge. Christ wanted them to behold His glory. Somehow, someway, Jesus Christ wants you and I, sinful, depraved, pitiful sinners, to be with Him. <laughs> what do you say to that? He wants us to be where He is. Again, if you struggle to understand how amazing is God's love for you, again, if that's a struggle, it's because you have not looked at your sin deeply enough. Because it is amazing love. Amazing love, how can it be that Christ would die for me? I pray that the Lord would fill us with His Spirit, that we be filled with the fullness of God and understand that right now, our minds cannot fully comprehend the glory that is to come. I hope that will encourage us. Let's pray.